Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we chat with a writer who writes with us every day at Writer's Hour, the actress, screenwriter, and novelist Bonnie McBird. In this interview, we talked to Bonnie about her early career working for Universal Studios, how she ended up co-writing the cult movie Tron, and more recently, how she used NaNoWriMo to kickstart her Sherlock Holmes mystery series and her career as a novelist. Bonnie tells us what we need to start any writing project. For example, she suggests we start with considering the genre, the title, and a theme. And she goes granular on how she researched Victorian culture for her latest Sherlock Holmes novel. And we also talk about why she thinks a character like Holmes has really stood the test of time. Bonnie motivated us to keep writing, and it was really interesting to go behind the scenes of how she creates her mystery series. Without further ado... We hope you enjoy our conversation with Bonnie McBird. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Bonnie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's really nice to be here. Thanks. Oh, we're so thrilled. And like Parl said, you write beside us here at Writer's Hour. And we get really curious about the writers that we write beside. And when we started to dig into your story, it's like we had to bring you in. You've lived such a big creative life. I mean, a few people have managed to accomplish one of the things that you've done, whether it's writing a blockbuster Hollywood movie, the Emmys that you've won publishing an iconic novel series, Sherlock Holmes, nonetheless. So we knew we had to bring you in. And we just held a goal-setting workshop yesterday, and we do this at the beginning of every month. And so big ambitions are on our mind. And we're curious. We often ask writers to imagine their future self and the future accomplishments that they might, might do and what they want to do. Did you ever imagine yourself achieving these things as a young writer? I think I hoped. <laughs> I wanted to write movies, first of all. I just love writing. I've loved it since I was a little kid. And then, you know, you're not doing it. That's, that's kind of off in the future. Like, oh, I really want to do that, too. I'm kind of greedy for all of the all of the experiences. So I wanted to write theater. I wanted to write movies. I wanted to write television. I want, But mostly I, I like to write entertainment. I would call the umbrella thing about what I'd like to do is I wanted to write really good entertainment. And I like forms. I like writing to forms. So there was a lot of them that I wanted to do, but I never, I didn't really ever think that I'd be writing a Sherlock Holmes series of novels in London. That was not in my, in my head. That's so cool. More broadly, what's, do you have a relationship with like visualizing or, or goal setting? You said you hoped to do these things, but do you, as you've evolved in your career, either early on or now, do you set goals? Do you visualize these things in the future? I do. I um, definitely do. I, when I was, uh, I got my master's in, at Stanford in film and I was taking a class 
in that course. Uh, it was in broadcasting. And the teacher of that was head of Kaiser Broadcasting at the time. And it was all about ratings and the business end. And I was like incredibly monumentally bored. And he noticed that. And he said, so tell me, he asked me a little bit. And I said what I liked. And he said, you know, my friend is Gene Roddenberry. He's got two uh, pilots going in two different studios right now. Would you like to read those scripts? And I'm like, yes, yes. Oh my God, yes. And so I got these scripts and I read them and he said, so write a critique on them. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah. So that I did that instead of the course. And I wrote a critique and Gene Roddenberry invited me down to Hollywood. I hadn't been there. You know, I didn't live there at the time. And it was kind of a dream come true. And I was this very starry eyed. He's one of my heroes, Star Trek. You know, I was a huge Trekkie. So he took a couple of my ideas. He actually used and he sat me down in his office and said, so what do you want to do? do you, I said, I want to write. He said, oh, okay, I'll have some advice for you. And like, you know, thinking profound, this is going to be profound. He said, learn to type really fast. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you know, that's, I'm a budding feminist, right? I'm, you know, right at that age, I'm 20, when I'm very kind of all about that. And I'm thinking, what does he think I should have a backup plan as a secretary or something? You know? And he's like, no, no, he, he saw that in my face, though. And he said, no, no, type really fast because writing is rewriting. You will rewrite over and over and over. He said, look at all the colors in the pages of this script. Each one represents a different rewrite. He said, you want to keep up with the speed of your thoughts. So I went off that summer and I took typing drills and I now I do type really fast. So, I mean, so, yes, I, I'm open to really open to advice and I really I really look for stuff that I think is going to help my process. And I have for uh, forever, pretty much. I'd love to head back to your early days. You were a story editor, I believe, and also a story development executive at Universal Studios. And I saw that you also worked with Ned Tannen, who, who was behind The Breakfast Club, St. Almost Fire. I mean, it sounds very glamorous and I'm fascinated by what you actually did there. What was your role? What did it entail? What was that experience like? I was hired to be an assistant to the head of the story department. That time, being a reader at the studios, doing coverage, that was a union job. So I couldn't just go in and take a union job. But I was hired to be a, an assistant to the head. And so I was kind of reading anyway, <laughs> doing reading and, and doing synopses and, and suggestions and reports and things on, on stuff, submissions to the studio. And because I was new and really young, I got the, you know, the, the dregs of it. <laughs> so, but anyway, I started turning these in and then I started doing kind of special things for Ned Tan and they, he would send something down. It's like some big wig had sent him this script and he had to like, you know, say something. He didn't want it, but he wanted to say something nice about it. <laughs> something, whatever. So I would write that script for him. So I would read it and I would say, okay, here are the positive points and here's, you know, et cetera. And then I started doing coverage for Ned and then I suddenly became his story editor. And so then I began to do basically notes on every draft of things that were in development for the studio. So that was incredible training because I got to see, you know, how something started and the many different pulls on the script, some of which were, you know, good editorial commentary and others were just some crazy movie star that didn't want to do this or wanted that <laughs> you know? and then you have to like make it work so it was a really intense training ground on on how to the malleability of a script and what what you know how you how you protect the integrity of it 
but it was fascinating. And um, I got to work with Verna Fields, who is called Mother Cutter. I don't know if you know who she is. She was the woman who edited Jaws. She won the Academy Award for that. She's a master storyteller, because if you're an editor, you're all about how to tell the story. And uh, so I got to work with her quite a bit. And it was uh, it was so the most intense storytelling training I think a person could have. I'm curious about, I don't know if this question is going to have a frame, but just how long would you or the team spend on a script? How many versions would you expect to go through? Or was there no such limit and it was really down to when the story was ready? There was no such limit. It would depend on how many people were having input, <laughs> how much clout they had, how much time there was before there was some deadline to get it started for the financing or for the weather or for who knows what. <laughs> And so it was kind of a free-for-all. And sometimes it was very quick and other times it, sometimes things went into development and never came out of development. And sometimes one of the strange things that sometimes happened is they'd buy a spec script because it was so good. And I remember they bought this one that was, they paid them more for this one script than any studio had ever paid for a spec script before. At that time, it was like a hundred thousand dollars. It's way more than that now, but at that time, it was the most. Then they bought this and it was a really a B movie. It was a summer kind of thriller movie, you know, about a car that comes to life and is deadly. And it was really tautly written with some good humor in it. And it moved like the wind. And it was, you know, it was a cheesy movie, but a really good one. Okay. So they bought that. Then they decided they should polish it and rewrite it. And lots of people started messing in with it. It turned into a terrible movie. It just totally blew it. And I remember me and a bunch of people there thought, why don't you just make the movie you bought? (laughs) Because I found that once, this is always true, once more than one writer starts coming in, they bring one writer and then another team, then another one, and then the minute you're layering writers on top of each other, the quality of the project just tanked and happened every time you'd think they would have learned that lesson. Is it true that it depends on the clout of the writer as to whether or not they can say no to the input that's been given? The screenwriters have no clout. Screenwriters are, there used to be a really awful sexist, horribly sexist phrase about that. They would say screenwriters are the wives of Hollywood, simultaneously insulting women and writers, basically. In other words, you have no say. You, You look good, but you have no say, basically. And it was a very brutal time. It was a very tough time to be a woman, actually, in there. I used to go to the the Wednesday meetings, staff meetings, and there would be two women in the room. Verna Fields, who was in her 60s and had won an Academy Award for Jaws, and me, 24, a nothing. (laughs) Just, you know, and I was expected to be quiet in these meetings. And I often would be like, why am I here? You know, I'm going to write you memos and stuff, and you're going to actually do a lot of the things I suggest, but you don't need to talk. It was a very weird thing. It was a very weird situation, but it was a good learning experience for learning story, learning storytelling, and seeing, you know, the arc of what worked. They weren't always right. You know, Ned Tannen did some amazing movies. He launched his career basically with American Graffiti. And he helped put George Lucas on the map. But George Lucas actually put Ned Tannen on the map. <laughs> so, so after American Graffiti, studio said to George Lucas, well, what do you want to do next? And he described what he wanted to do. And they said, nobody wants to see a soap opera in, uh, in space, you know, like a Western soap opera in space. Uh, no, <laughs> nobody wants that. Well, anyway, 
<laughs> flash forward to a couple of years later, and I went to Paramount with Ned Tennant to watch the initial screening of Star Wars before it was released. And I sat next to him and the Star Wars began to play and he went, <laughs> because no one had ever, <laughs> you know, what an incredible mistake he had made by letting this go. Because the point of that, their whole point of that is that, and it's the same thing my husband is a computer scientist says, so you don't bet on the project, you bet on the person. It's the creative person that you bet on. And George Lucas, I mean, let's face it. Yeah, so it was a very emotional and kind of fraught time. But I was just basically very much behind the scenes, uh, just doing story edit notes on everything. I don't think I could have had better training than that. I mean, what a beginning, what a start to your career. I mean, aside from the politics and what you had to endure, being around such talent, how incredible. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of fun in that sense, except I mean, some of it was, but it was a tough, tough job. And um, I've always been kind of a workaholic. So I, I would read like, I don't know, three or four scripts every day and cover them as well as do notes on the stuff in the development. And then I would read 14 or 15 every weekend. I never took a vacation in four years. You know, it's kind of a nut, but um, yeah, I wouldn't do that now. <laughs> But yeah, it sounds a lot like being an assistant editor at a publishing house and just reading the slush pile or, or graduating to reading better things, <laughs> better things. Right. Exactly. Yes. As you move up, you get the better submissions. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm curious about you know, the fact that you were reading all these spec scripts and then you were in that position. You started to write. You left Universal, I believe, to work with Stephen Lisberger, and that led you to write Tron which was released in 1982 and went on to become a cult film. How did that experience and how did that film impact the trajectory of your career? Oh, well, it was kind of a, um, an interesting moment. I, at the time, right before I left Universal, I was also covering theater and the comedy scene for them. So I would go like in the evenings to the comedy store and all the places along Sunset Boulevard and watch the new young comics. And I saw Robin Williams perform. And I was like, oh, oh my God, this man, you must make a deal with this man right now. I mean, I just, he was just like meteoric and um, I couldn't get them to make a deal with him. And I left over that. (laughs) I was like, you know, you've tasked me to do this. And like, you know, hundreds of people, this is the guy, this is the guy. Why did you ask me to look for this? If you're not going to listen to me. Anyway, so um, I left because I met Stephen and we had been working on something at Universal and we enjoyed working together. And so he and I left and I had an idea for, uh, he had an idea of a setting that was Tron inside of a computer. And he had a look, a look feel in his mind. He's a very visual guy. And I had the idea of sending Robin Williams, boom, into that world and see what happens. So we left with that, which is basically just a notion. <laughs> and it became, eventually became Tron. But of course, uh, Robin right then got Mark and Mindy took off. And then we couldn't, you know, we couldn't work with him as a little independent company. He, he quickly got out of our league. So we didn't end up doing that. And then it went another direction altogether. That's how it happened. <laughs> again, again, the stories in your treasure trove are incredible. And the fact that you saw that talent and Universal didn't. Oh, it was thrilling to see him. I saw him upstairs over a gas station in a little room, the linoleum floor and fluorescent lighting and people on folding chairs. And he had a cardboard box full of hats and he came out and he blew everyone away. (laughs) It was just 
really. And I have a very, perhaps a bit of a basic question. I'm just curious about your writing the script for Tron and then being produced. Would you have been paid a set fee or is there a royalty that's given? How does that work? Well, it works depending on the deal you've made, basically. That's what I was curious about. I mean, there's two different things. There's the credit, what credit you get as the writer. And then there's the ownership of the intellectual property. And that's a different thing in the movie business. So the credit that you get is determined by the writer's guild because at a certain point, the movie is now locked. It's been shot, edited, it's locked. And then the writers who worked on it, and there were eight of them after me at Tron, show the drafts they did and contend for credits. Most of them did not contend for credits. It was just me and Lisberger, pretty much. And then the Writers Guild looks at your drafts and makes a determination, et cetera. And then that determines the credit. Sometimes what your ownership is as a writer is tied to that credit. Sometimes it's not. That's just the nature of whether your contract is there. To me, I have to be honest, this is the least interesting thing about that whole experience. I mean, Hollywood is not known for being kind to writers or nurturing to writers or in any way hospitable, frankly. So, I mean, yeah, it was what it was. It wasn't really a happy experience for me because we had a lot of creative differences and he went on without me and I took a buyout. I was initially contracted to be one of the producers. But, you know, so it wasn't ultimately a really happy experience. But, I mean, I was thrilled to be working on the ground floor of it and I enjoyed my initial year and a half on it. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing, buddy. Thank you for your honesty. I think sometimes it's not clear to someone who's looking from the outside. It's actually really helpful to hear. Well, it, it works. It's a bit of a complicated thing. Depends on the contract you have and et cetera. So, but the credits are separate from the ownership. Hmm. How, how do you advise young writers who are hoping to forge a career in Hollywood like yours years ago? <laughs> Go away. It's something else. <laughs> I know it is something else. No, I mean, just, just get really good at it. I mean, write, 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 you know, it's, it's like whatever you want to be a success in, in writing, you need to write in that genre. And it helps if you love that genre, rather than trying to write something you don't love, you know, write the kind of movie you want to see, you know, so after Tron, I wrote a few movies on spec, and I had, I had a lot of options, but I didn't, I didn't, none of them were taken to fruition. And the most fun I had is I, I wrote a romantic comedy with another partner and Jacqueline Bissett was attached to it. And I got to work on a rewrite for her when with her. She was phenomenal, super smart woman, really nice. She was kind of an idol of mine and to work with her was a thrill. So, I mean, there was some very fun things about it, but ultimately it's not a real satisfying gig unless you, it's different now if you are a showrunner in a, say, a limited series then it's an altogether different thing. Then you have much more control, much more artistic control, and you're in a different spot altogether. But back then, being a screenwriter in feature films, you're just a cog in the wheel. And even people like William Goldman, who are at the top of the heap, were treated badly. Wow. Surprising to hear. Appreciate the honesty, though. Well, let's turn to writing novels. Let's turn to Sherlock Holmes. Yes, please, please. (laughs) It's so interesting. I mean, we we, we love to dig into the whole career. So this is all painting the picture of of Bonnie and where you are today. But it's November 1st. Lots of writers are starting NaNoWriMo. And we were very excited to learn that the first draft of your first Sherlock Holmes book, Art in the Blood, was written during a personal 30-day NaNoWriMo sprint. Can you place us in your life at the time and how the seed for that book came about? 
Sure. Well, I had in my mind that I really wanted to write a novel, but I wanted to write a novel and get it out there because there was part two of that. I had written one novel before this, and then I went the traditional, self-publishing wasn't really a thing then or wasn't as accessible. There were super vanity publishers that you wanted to avoid, but nothing else. There was nothing else. So I had the one novel done. I had got an agent for it, but that agent wasn't able to sell it. So it just went in a drawer. And it sat there. So this is 10 years on. And I'm like, you know, I really want to get a novel. I have a novel in me. I want to get it out there. But now with the way self-publishing works, I can assure that I will get it out. I will write it. I will make it as perfect as I can. And when that's ready, I will. So I gar- I had a guarantee. <laughs> so I said, okay, so it was an undropped shoe for me. I, without going into detail, I had just had a really serious life-threatening illness. And I recovered from it completely. But when I recovered, I was realizing that close call that now it's now or never. It's like now is the time to do my dream. Why wait? So I I usually entertain the entire extended family for Christmas. And I said, you know, this Christmas, not going to do that. And I we just it was just my husband and me. We closed the door and I started on Christmas Day as a gift to myself to do a NaNoWriMo. And I knew whatever I did, I would I could finish it and I could get it out there. And you did it. I did. The 30 days. <laughs> and did you show up every day for those 30 days? Every day. No, I didn't do the 1600 and whatever, I forget how many words every day because nobody does. I mean, sometimes I did more and sometimes I did less. And a couple of times I did none. And I would stop and outline for a couple of days and then I would go back to drafting and so forth. But I did hit, I did my 50,000 or a few and I hit you know, the arc of the story, beginning, middle, and boom, and landing it. Now, it still was full of mistakes and things like threads that didn't, you know, that petered out and then didn't pay off or this wasn't set up yet. Or, I mean, it was not like anywhere near showable, but it was a full draft with most of the stuff worked out. And I had, I was so pleased. I didn't know that I could do it. I wasn't sure that I could do it, but I thought I would try it. And NaNoWriMo is such a good framework because it is doable. It's not easy, but it is doable. And there's something about the the enforced self-discipline of that gets you past the fears because it's like, you know, I had more fear about not doing it because, you know, you make, I don't know if any of you have read No Plot, No Problem by Chris Beatty. He's one of the people who started NaNoWriMo. And he has a book called No Plot, No Problem, which I read right before, like the day before <laughs> starting. And basically it's about how to think about a NaNoWriMo. And so, um, and how to just plunge in and and get past your, your fears. And one of the things he suggested is make a negative promise to yourself. I don't know if you all have done that, but the negative promise is something like, if I don't do 50,000 words beginning, middle, and end of a novel, not perfect or anything like that, but 50,000 beginning, middle, end, if I don't make that, I promise to. And so my pledge was to donate $1,000 to the political party of not my choice. And by God, they're not going to get my money. <laughs> That's great. A little bit of stick with some carrot. That was a stick. Yeah, they're not going to get my money. But it's kind of an integrity thing. You have to make a promise. You have to actually promise. And it should be something that you... So in other words, what it is, it has to be something you really don't want to do. It can't be something harmful like, you know, go swimming naked in the something and shoot at the goal. It's not something like that. It's something like what I just suggested. 
something you really don't want to do. It was nobody's going to die over it or anything, but you don't want to do it. That's great. So often it involves a donation or, or something like that. Mm. And you've written some excellent blog posts, which we'll share with people after this for some help. But let's say someone is just starting NaNoWriMo. Maybe they don't even have the time to read that book. Right. Because it's today. They started today. Yeah, it's today. It's starting in the UK with like four and a half more hours before the end of the day. You can still get it in. <laughs> what would you advise someone? What do they need to start? Is it a rough outline? You need to know what genre of book they're writing. That's the first thing. Like, are you writing a uh, cozy? Are you writing a, uh, it's, it's, you know, a Scandinavian noir? Are you writing, you know, I don't know. What are you writing? What's the genre that you're writing? Are you trying to write lit fic? Are you trying to write domestic suspense? What are you writing genre-wise? And so you kind of, it would be helpful to have an ideal book in your head, a book that you like, because ideally you should be writing a book you want to read, a book you like. Mm. So, so what genre do you like? What is the genre of your book? That's the first thing. You, you really must know the genre. It helps to just have a working title. But even more important than the title is to have, I think, and this is not always given as advice, but it helped me, a theme. So my title and my theme are almost always connected. And that's true of all my Sherlock Holmes books. So in fact, the first thing I do with all my books now is come up with a title and a theme. So for me, Art in the Blood, there is a, a, that's a quote from the original show that comes by Conan Doyle, Art in the Blood is liable to take the strangest forms. And that is a quote about uh, Holmes and Mycroft themselves, how they're kind of strange birds, but they both have this genius ability to deduce things from small factoids, right? And it's partly their deduction powers, but it's also has to do with their vast store of knowledge. Like it helps that he knows, you know, hundred and some variations of tobacco. You know, he has, a, he has a library in his head. So, but art in the blood is this thing, that the, the artistic temperament is what was really interesting to me. My mother and my father both were artists and the artistic temperament confers some superpowers on a person, but it also confers weaknesses and some vulnerabilities. I mean, there's some, there's kind of a Janus-faced benefit to being an artist of various kinds. And Holmes is definitely an artist whereas Watson is not. So what does it mean to have an artistic temperament? So that that became something I wanted to explore. Now, it's in the genre of, you know, a mystery slash thriller. Holmes has thriller elements in it because there's danger, not in every one of the original stories, but in many of them. So it's a mystery thriller, but I wanted to explore the notion of the art. What does the artistic temperament do for you? What does it cost you? But that's how I started, <laughs> basically. And so every time I would kind of get lost, like, I don't know what to ha what's happening now. I don't know what I should do next. I would go back to that and go like, what about art? How does art influence this? Is there an artist that comes in? Is there somebody whose temperament has you know, thrown a wrench into the plans in some way? So, you know, it just kept pulling me to have this theme. So the genre, a title and a theme are really helpful. Then, of course, you need your who's your protagonist and what do they want? That's the, you know, the classic, everybody gets that, that instruction, right? Who's the, what do they want? <laughs> and it's interesting because even in lit fic where you feel like, okay, it's not really a plot, you know, it's not, it's not genre fiction, but I'm currently, I'm not a huge fan, I would say, of lit fic. However, I'm madly in love with this book, which I'm reading right now. I don't know if you can see it, Gentleman in Moscow by Emma Tells. This is lit fic. And yet, even though 
it doesn't have a conventional mystery plot or a thriller plot. It's not a genre novel. Yet there is narrative drive to it. And so that's something you need to think about. You need to feel like every scene you write needs to, should have octopus arms of plot. You don't have to know where they're going at all. In fact, some of them you'll go back and amputate later because they didn't go anywhere. But some of them will find their way into something interesting and you allow yourself the freedom to just send those out. One of the things that uh, happens for most people is they get act one. I, I think of a three act structure that's kind of in my head. And I have to admit that that's one of the benefits of having worked on movies for so long. Typically they're classic three act structure. And that's kind of like in my bones now. So I have a sense as I'm writing about the structure. If act two bogs down and that's where everybody gets really panicked in week two and three, because I don't know what's going on. I don't know where to go with this. That's because in act one, you don't have enough octopus arms of plot. So don't be afraid to just come up with wild and crazy anything in the first bunches of pages. You can always take it out later. This is just a first draft. Love it. But it's fun because you allow your imagination to just insert things and people and props and little moments that you don't know where they're from. They just come in and you don't know where they're going, but maybe they'll pay off later. That's my advice. Amazing. Well, thanks for giving everyone that permission to explore the tentacles of the octopus. Very cool. So if we go back again to, so you did the 30 days, you did the writing. What was the next step? After that, it was a personal goal, but then it's become this big thing, five books out now. What was the very next step between that the 30 days or after those 30 days of writing? Well, at 30 days, I knew I had a basic map and I had some really good scenes and I had some really good characters, but it wasn't hanging together yet. It wasn't paced correctly. There were some undropped things uh, that I'd started. And also I, I felt like it was too violent in places that pulled it from the genre I was trying to do. I mean, Holmes has real violence, the original Holmes. It's not prurient violence as we get now in thrillers, you know, where he, where like I, I like to call it on screen, you see gory stuff. I didn't really do that then. But there is some danger and there's blood and there's somebody gets their you know, gets an ear in a box and somebody else gets their thumb cut off. And I mean, and Holmes almost falls into quicksand. There's actually danger in these stories. And some, you know, but I had to like find what's the level of goriness and or danger that's right for this Holmes book for this time and place. And I'm still emulating. I want it to feel like an original Holmes. So I was feeling that out. And I, my first draft, it went too far. It went too gory, a little too gory. And it's like, didn't feel right to me. So I knew I had to pull back on some stuff, but I really wanted the suspense and the danger. So I had some work to do. So I just took a little rest and then I took another entire pass at it. Then, <laughs> then I hired an editor. I paid money to an editor to read it over and give me good feedback on it. And I picked well, this person was good. They gave me some excellent feedback, I took another pass and then another one. And then I started trying to submitting it to agents. I got some rejections, several rejections, lots of rejections. <laughs> Let's be honest, lots of rejections. Mainly people saying no one wants more Sherlock Holmes. No one wants that. But, you know, no one wanted the soap opera set in space. I mean, nobody knows what no one wants or what anybody wants. As an artist, you have to do what you want to read or you want to see. 
I'm not comparing this to Star Wars. I'm in no way in that league. But the point is, you can't entirely rely on the, the zeitgeist, or as it is now, to tell you what you should do. So, for example, you know, for quite a while now, domestic suspense has been the publisher's dream. Every, like, it's filling the bookstores with these blot print titles. You see the girl this, the girl that, you know. The, I mean, this has been going on for some time now. But, you know, then something breaks the mold. Then this guy writes, you know, a little story about a count in 1922 who was stuck in a hotel. Like, that doesn't work well in a pitch. <laughs> Nobody's going to say, oh, let's see that book. <laughs> you know what I mean? So in any case, you have to write the book you want to read. That should be really clear in your head. And you work till you get the book you want to read on the page. And then you have to believe in it and you just have to keep trying. So I went on and on and on and I got many rejections and then I got a yes. And then she started submitting it and got many, many, many rejections. And then she got a yes. You only need one. <laughs> you just need one. That's amazing. And I, I imagine your experience too, seeing someone like Robin Williams not getting picked up, something like Star Wars not being believed in. Yeah. I imagine that kind of like sunk deep into your bones to say, this is just part of the process. People will say no. It is, Matt. But on the other hand, I didn't. I don't put myself in their league. I mean, I uh, I have a pretty good <laughs> calibration for greatness. And like this guy, Emmer tells, this is a writer I would dream of being as good as that person. But the, so the point, I guess, is that really you do have to believe in your what you're writing. I wanted to create, and I'm not being trying to be modest. I'm just I wanted to create a really wonderful genre novel that you can't put down, that it's fascinating and interesting and has laughs in it because Conan Doyle is very funny, by the way. It had to have the laughs. It had to have surprises. It had to have really interesting deductions that you, you wouldn't see coming necessarily. It had to have the period feel because I love to be rocketed back to the late 19th century. I love it. Well, you look at my room. <laughs> you know, I, li I like the whole deal. So I wanted to be there and I wanted to create this ride that was riveting and fun. That was my goal. Not I, I didn't think I was creating great art. I wanted to create something that was beautifully crafted and grabbed you and let you go. And a lot of your reviews say that, and I've read your books as well, and I believe that you've achieved that. Um, you definitely bring Sherlock Holmes to life in a, in a wonderful way. And you do take us back to Victorian London. Um, I want to ask you a bit about your your love for homes, but I just want to go back to the what you said about genre and how when someone's starting on a project, a nano project or a sprint, you advise thinking about genre. I've heard a lot of writers struggle to categorize their work and they'll say, I defy genre. I do not fit into a category. How might you advise them to take a step? I say that's the unhelpful rebel in you. <laughs> we all have those. <laughs> I'm special. I'm quite different. Uh, I'm being a little, you know, snarky here. But but in fact, you can do cross-genre. Of course you can. But you need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. So to just say I'm different and I don't fit into a genre is really something that means you don't, you haven't really considered it. Why don't you fit into a genre? It's really what you're saying is I want to do literary fiction, but that has an undercurrent of thriller in it. Or I want to do, you know, something like that. Yeah. And that makes sense. You're right. Just finding out how you, what subsections you have. Yeah, you actually are doing genre of some sort or some combination genre. 
but it helps to know that because you are not writing, unless you're writing journaling, which is a very good thing to do for writers, but it's a separate thing. If you're writing for a reader, then you want to give them something clear, something that they take and go and get sucked into without having to try to figure out what you're doing. They just want to be sucked into the story. And so it's the story that's crucial. But the genre will inform you on a couple of things. It'll inform you on the pacing and style of that story, the voice of that story. But it'll also give you a promise of where the journey is going to take you. So in a Sherlock Holmes novel, you know you're going to go into dangerous territory. You're going to meet kind of awful people and there'll be some jeopardy. But Sherlock Holmes will set things right and he'll do it in a really smart way. That's the promise of that genre. So you have to be making your reader a promise because it's your audience. You're delivering this to them. And if you're going, well, I'm not going to commit. It's like, no, no, no. Your reader wants to be taken with you, but they need to have feel pretty quickly on what kind of story is this? That makes sense. So it's it's a kindness to your reader. It's 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 what you owe them. And so I'm special. I'm not really a genre. It just means you haven't defined what you're doing yet. Like I said, you can do cross genre, so you can be unusual. There's no problem with that. I'm not criticizing wanting to be unusual. We all want to stand out, of course. You know, I'm doing Sherlock Holmes, but I'm doing it in a special way. <laughs> it's like we all we all want to be special, right? Like they said in the musical Fantastics, oh God, please don't let me be normal. Anyway, <laughs> so we want to be special, but yet, you know, the reader needs a promise. Reader needs a promise. I love it. Now I'd love to turn to your writing of Sherlock Holmes, and you've read, well, you've written your own Sherlock Holmes books, but you've also read the whole body of Doyle's Sherlock Holmes books. I'm curious from your perspective, what makes Sherlock Holmes so memorable? Why has he lasted throughout the ages? Well, it's a a complex set of reasons. First of all, he, I mean, uh, he's an indelible, he's one of the first superheroes ever written, okay? And you feel smart when you're reading it. So he invites the reader along, the kind of invites the reader along. It's got one of the great friendships of all literature in Watson. And it's got um, Sherlock Holmes as a character is so complicated. He's almost a cipher. So he's got some detail that's presented, but there's quite a few holes that you don't know about him. You sense damage. He's a bit screwed up, (laughs) no question. But he's so... How, you know, he's so intelligent. He's very, very strong. And yet he falls into these melancholies. He can't get off the sofa. He's probably bipolar. He's definitely what we call Asperger's. You know, those are the modern terms now. But he's described very clearly as both these things. And he's vulnerable because of it. Sometimes Watson has to like, you know, get him in line or whatever. Or in one of the originals, uh, Watson has to run down to the south of France because Holmes has collapsed at the floor of the hotel uh, like at the end of a case and he needs rescuing. So in other words, he's got some vulnerabilities and, you know, it's like the kryptonite, the Superman. I mean, you want to have a hero that has some chinks in the armor and he's complicated, but he's, it, it's really fun for me. One of the things that really draws me to Sherlock Holmes is the power of rational thought is glorifying the scientific method. And that, that to me is, the romance of that is huge to me. I'm married a scientist, just give you the idea, but the romance of what the scientific method brings to life is just so powerful. 
And then also Sherlock Holmes has an unerring sense of justice. And we don't have that in our world in operation a lot of the time. And so he's a comfort. There's a certain kind of cozy quality to a Sherlock Holmes thing because it starts and ends in 221B around the fireplace, two friends. But in between chaos, madness, danger, and a horror and stuff. But then <laughs> back to the fireplace. And that's a promise that is very satisfying to a modern reader as well for to every reader throughout the last 130 years. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that, of course. The start, the, the, the comfort of familiarity, always going back to that place, having... Well, you know he's going to solve it. Yes. It may not be really comfortable. Everything doesn't work out necessarily perfectly, but Sherlock Holmes will figure it out and justice will be served. I love your enthusiasm for him. And it's interesting to just hear you describe what you think makes him unique. Because I think writers struggle with, or writers want their characters to stand out in the same way. They want them to be unlike any other characters. Yes, yes. Well, I'm cheating. I'm I'm borrowing somebody else's characters for the main two characters. Uh, However, I have to say that I have a heck of a lot of fun with all the other characters (laughs) in my books. Is there anyone that's particularly fun to write for you? Yeah, uh, Hefe O'Malley, who appeared in the third book. She's a 15-year-old Cockney orphan whose father was a Irish prize fighter and his mother was a Jewish school teacher. And she's got elements of both of her parents very strongly in her. And she's a really fun character. And people have commented that, you know, she steals every scene she's in. <laughs> and she's a lot of fun. I brought her back in the Christmas one. She has kind of a really good role in this one. And then there's an ongoing character named Jean Vidoc, who's French. And he has stolen the name Vidoc from the famous real Vidoc, who was the guy who founded the Surete, very complicated man who was both a criminal and a policeman. <laughs> but Vidoc, in my books, is a kind of bullshit uh, He's a French detective, and he thinks he's a he thinks he's a rival to Sherlock Holmes, and he gets in the way, and he causes some trouble, and he's funny. <laughs> I love that you enjoy it so much. Those are two of my first. But I also, you know, people have said, you know, that I also have good female characters, and because I don't want to read a book without a good female character, that's like, you know, I want that. So you you have to write. That's the other thing I would advise people to do is write the book they want to read. So yeah, I've had a wild variety of. Uh, female characters, a woman who runs who who runs a whiskey business, uh, a nurse uh, who's a Florence Nightingale trained nurse. You know, I've got a lot of different women who do <laughs> a wide variety of things and fulfill a lot of different roles in Victorian society. I've got a young student who uh, who lives in Cambridge and uh, whose father who's a professor, and he will not allow her to study, and she rebels against that. So I've got you know I've got quite a, an interesting group. It's a very exciting time to be writing about, the super exciting time at the end of the 19th century. Mm. Well, let's turn to your newest book. The fifth book is out. What Child Is This? Do you have a cover you can flash up? Yes. I just happen to have that right here. <laughs> Perfect. Ooh. Can you tell us about it, the premise of it, and and how the idea for this one came about? Well, title first, and uh, of course, the Christmas song, What Child Is This?, so a couple of people said to me, I've never heard of that Christmas song. And I'm like, really? It's to the tune of Greensleeves. And there are 2,000 versions of it on Spotify. <laughs> 2,000, really. Anyway, and uh, I got to uh, work with Frank Cho, who's a Marvel Comics illustrator. And here's one of his illustrations for the, in the book. So cool. He did some really beautiful work. And um, 
So I decided this would be a little bit shorter. This would be a novella. I usually have three cases that convolve together and to make one novel in my other books. This has two instead of three. It does have the illustrations though. And I decided that What Child Is This had to do with two sons and it had to do with identity issues. And so one child is, there's been an attempted kidnapping of a, time, of a young three-year-old boy by a very violent guy who keeps trying. And, and then there's a, another story of a, a very wealthy country nobleman who comes to town and says, my son, who I set up in a beautiful flat here in London, is missing. He's gone. And we need to find him. So those two are, those are the two cases. I decided that because it was a Christmas story, I would leave out the most outre <laughs> of violence, violent things that I, I have put a few kind of gasping moments in some of the other books. But I decided not for this one because I'm kind of modeling that on, on Conan Doyle's choice for his one Christmas story, which was the blue carbuncle and there's no violence in it. There's a crime and there's some danger and there's, you know, deception and there's mystery that Holmes has to solve. And there is in this too. Uh, there's just not bloody violence in it. Mm. There's a hint. It could be though. <laughs> so anyway, so I made those decisions kind of going in, that was my decision. And then I just started drafting the same way I did the first one with NaNoWriMo. I just plunged in and I sit down at, usually at eight o'clock with you guys every day. And I just sit down and just do it till the first draft's done. Amazing. I love knowing that you're writing Sherlock Holmes stories beside us at Writer's Hour. Something very special. About Was this one written in Writer's Hour? Quite a bit of it. Yeah, quite a bit of it was written with you. Yeah. Amazing. I either sit on the sofa or I we have a, a little tiny balcony with a tiny little table. And I sometimes sit out there if it's not inclement weather. And I and I write right there. And it's so helpful because I, I feel kind of lonely. I, I'm sort of stuck here. And so the, the sense of community that you provided, you, you guys, it's really a beautiful, remarkable thing. I've turned a lot of people on too. And uh, it's just, it's something that it means a great deal to me. Oh, well, right back at you, Bonnie. Thank you. I mean, it's, it means a lot to us to know that someone as prolific as you still finds value in something and how for so many years, maybe the technology, I guess, wasn't there, but there was a need that wasn't being fulfilled that obviously we've stumbled upon and we're so grateful. Well, you you created something that is that is unique, I think. And it also is because you're both writing, you know what you need. <laughs> you know, you created what you need. So that, I mean, that's kind of what I was saying about writing. You write the book you want to read, you know? So it's easier to image that when you know what you want. That's why I say to the people who think, oh, my book isn't a genre. It's like, well, but you have an idea of what your book is. So five books in, is there anything you still find difficult either about the characters, these stories, the voice? Anything you still struggle with? Yeah, I struggle with self-confidence. I struggle with acceptance. I struggle with the fact that when Amazon removed your ability to comment, that anybody can just say anything they want about your work and you have no recourse. They can be completely wrong and they can just state it and you have no recourse. That really bothers me. And my husband, who's a, a very smart man and a very tough thinker says, you just have to let that roll off you. I have trouble with that. I would like to let that roll off me. But when people say things that are just wrong, you know, they get, get something wrong. 
that's just not really fair. So that bothers me. <laughs> I have to admit it. I have to admit it. It does. <laughs> I mean, makes sense. You know, it's what it's everybody's entitled to their opinion. I'm not talking about somebody who says, I don't like this because blah. But when they say, you know, this would never have happened because blah, blah, it's like, no, that's absolutely wrong. It absolutely did happen. And yes, and, you know, I do my research, a lot of it. So, you know, that kind of thing rankles, rankles a fair amount. It's, it's, it's the curse of social media. I mean, that's the problem now. We live in a, a world of gossip and innuendo and lies, frankly. And it's very hard to, you know, as a creative person to just kind of separate from that. My friends who do that well say they just don't read any of those. And maybe that's the solution. I don't know. Maybe that is the solution because I, I, my heart goes out to you for not being able to, you know, come back to someone who's, well, who's got it wrong. Yeah. They just, they're wrong. It's like, you know, people didn't do that then. It's like, yeah, they did. <laughs> But anyway, so that probably is is the hardest thing. And and sometimes, you know, I sure I suffer from days where I feel like I'm never going to finish this. I don't know what happens next. And and you know what I do when I when I have those thoughts is I just sit down at eight o'clock and just say it's right or do nothing, as you say frequently that Neil said it's right or do nothing. I love it. This makes me very happy. I don't like to do nothing. I mean, it's too boring. So I write and I just go, I'm going to do a really awful version. Okay, this is the scene where they go to the zoo and they meet the herpetologist and blah, 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 blah happens. And I start writing, oh, this is boring. This is terrible. I have no ideas. This is not going to end up in the book. And I just write it anyway. I write the terrible scene of that. And then I look at it the next day, and usually it's not nearly as terrible as I thought. Often it's workable. Sometimes it's even good, but I cannot tell when I'm doing it. But what I do is when I just feel like I can't do it, I just do it anyway. I go, I'm going to write the really awful version of this right now. So I write the awful version. Sometimes it is awful, <laughs> of course, and then it gets thrown out and rewritten. But I did the words. And just showing up, it's like it like develops the muscle. And the more you show up, the more you've got, you develop the strength to the fight that inner voice that goes, oh, you can't really do this. You know, who wants to hear what you have to say? All the bad stuff. <laughs> you know, who wants to hear that? By the way, I have a funny story about, I took a workshop with Julia Cameron once. And in that workshop, she had us dialogue with our inner critic. And we got, we grew, went into little groups, three, three people in a group. Uh, three or four people, whatever, and we dialogue with them, and then we read them aloud in our little groups. And then she said, "Who would like to read theirs aloud?" And I was like, <sighs> "And my, my little group could read hers, read hers. It's oh my god, read hers, mine." And I'm like, "She goes, okay, read yours." I'm like, "Oh no, like, okay." So I read mine. Well, my okay, we're in England where you now say things are sweary, which I love because I swear a lot. And in America, it's much more frowned upon than here, which I would never have guessed before living here. Anyway, mine was so sweary, so angry, so vitriolic, so pointed and mean. And just like, it was like this, you stupid, you can't do that. And you look what you blah. And I read it and there's this dead silence in the room. And one woman in the workshop says, I didn't want to hear that. And I'm like, oh, oh, I felt so, so terrible. It's like, I'm the only person that has a critic that talks like that. And oh, my God, I must have something wrong with me. And Anyway, flash forward to 20 minutes later, it's break. We're all having coffee and cookies. Five women come up to me, you know, five 
four women and one man come up to me and say, my critic sounds just like yours. And all of them were professionals. Gosh, that's interesting. They were all professional writers. And so we started talking about that. And we said, okay, so we've been doing this a long time and we do turn out stuff. Why is it that our critics are so violent and mean and nasty? Because they've had a long time to develop their game. Whenever you can fight them off, they up their game and get worse and harder at you. You just have to up your game. (laughs) So that's one of the things you do the longer you write is you up your game fighting because you know, those voices never go away. I get them all the time, but you just up your game and you, you know, you, they'll, they'll try to match you, <laughs> but you just keep showing up. Mm. That reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Pressfield, the war of art. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that. Wonderful book, but he talks about the resistance with a capital R and he says the greater something is to your evolution or what you need to do, the greater the resistance is to match that. So it reminds me of that. Yeah, it, it probably it's probably a very similar uh, description. But I was so I felt was feeling so terrible and very alone and like weird. And then these other writers approached me and said, "Hey, mine's just like that." Hmm. And you've written a blog post actually about dealing with the inner critic. Yeah, and you've said you can't meet the inner critic head on. It will always win because it's stronger than you and has no scruples. You have to be a bit devious. Here's the tactic. One, acknowledge. Two, agree it might be true. Three, return to task. Can you tell us any more about this? Yeah, right. Yeah, you might be right. I might be terrible. This might be a really bad idea I'm putting in this scene, but I'm going to do this now. And if it's a really bad idea, I'll take it out later. And that's every day? Do you return to this quite often? Is way of thinking? Pretty often. Some days more than others, but pretty often, yeah. Yes, I do. But some days less than others. I've gotten better at, I guess, closing the blinds. I mean, the thing's still there. I can feel it. But I just keep writing because, um, you know, I've had to, well, the pandemic, right? We're all, lots of things are going on in the world. We can't avoid that. I'm not going to go into all of it, but we all know what they are and they're upsetting and everybody's in this soup. So the same kind of resilience helps with that. If you just look at it as there's so many things, so many forces that want me not to write, let's keep them all out here while I quickly just write from the wild, then I'll attend to them. Some of it is your critics. Some of it is worry about the stuff that's going on. Thanks for sharing. What a useful framework, though. I want to repeat it, though, because I think some people might, might find it useful. Acknowledge, agree it might be true, return to task. It sounds like you do that pretty quickly. So I imagine you get better at, at returning to task. I'd love to talk about your research process just because it's such a wonderful, well, fascinating period of time that you write about um, Victorian England. And I'm just curious, say say if we take the latest book, What Child Is This? And you're depicting Christmas in that era. How are you going about your research process? Where are you looking? uh, How much time are you spending? uh, I spend, spend a fair amount. But it happens before, during, and after. 
Uh, and in fact, I have to admit something. I normally post um, on on my website. I ha I post annotations, which have a lot of stuff from my research photographs. Stuff, and I'm behind. I haven't posted all of the ones for this book yet because I just I've had some personal things I've had to attend to. So there it'll be coming up in the next week or so. But uh, the research starts beforehand because I usually uh, I usually pick a year and I pick a location uh, because I knew I couldn't travel around on this one. I picked London. Um, but I've, I've gone to uh, I, I've gone to Macclesfield where there was a silk mill that I went into. I've been to the island Isle, island of Isla for the Scottish uh, whiskey industry. There's a distillery there that has a, a Victorian still extant. They were using it still, and um, and then I uh, Highland. Uh, <laughs> so a Highland Castle. I've been all uh, lots of different places, and I go to museums and so forth. I couldn't really leave my leave my flat on the last two, really. Um, the one before this was set in Cambridge, and I just the three locks. I had visited the uh, National Lock Museum, and then I visited Cambridge, and then lockdown happened, and I couldn't do any more on-site research. But this one, I said, okay, I've got a, this is going to be in my head and research online and so forth. Uh, so Victorian Christmas is really interesting because it, it, basically the English late Victorian Christmas is the Christmas that we all kind of know and you know celebrate with the trees and the presents and the carols and the the, the wassail and the you know all stuff puddings and it all kind of formed at that time and it was inspired by um, uh, Prince Albert who brought a lot of those traditions from Germany uh, in the 1850s and 1860s he brought that into the royal family and of course whatever the royal family does <laughs> everybody follows so Christmas became a big celebration and a lot about kids and so forth so um, but <laughs> of course that's fun because once Holmes does not care about that stuff it's like oh <laughs> that would be a fun uh, juxtaposition of him and his sort of Scrooge, like, get this away from me <laughs> kind of stuff. But Watson is, you know, more traditional. It's like, how oh, did up? <laughs> about it? That'd be some fun conflict. And so I, I wanted to set it richly in that environment, but then contrast to that because not everybody could afford a Christmas tree and um, poverty was pretty rampant and so was crime. Um, you know, you walk around present day London and you see homelessness you see people sleeping in doorways and so forth well it was four or five times that number of people in Holmes's time sleeping in doorways and, and the alleys and um and of course it was much colder then the climate was different so it uh, was snowing a lot um, the Thames would often freeze because uh, it wasn't tidal at that time so it was slower moving and it would freeze so it was a different you know, different landscape really um and so what does that mean what is how does that affect our characters um and I also was interested in seeing the juxtaposition of the different um levels of uh, society at the time that's just fascinating. And Holmes is kind of classless. He's sort of floating separate from all that. He's, he, he's bohemian. You know, he's, he, I mean, he dresses as a gentleman because he has to pass and he's got to like, he's got to be respected. So he dresses when he's out like a gentleman, it, but in at 221B, he's in his robe and slippers most of the time. 
<laughs> you know, and even when he receives people, because he just doesn't care. But but you know, when he needs to do his work, he dresses as a gentleman. So it's like how you present yourself out there is like uh, so you know so important back then, and so incredibly different from now. So if you walk down Baker Street right now, and you you just you see people wearing North Face jackets, they could be the Deliveroo driver or they could be a shape. And they are often, so, you know, they all dress the same. I mean, well, I mean, I exaggerate slightly, but, but, but clothing is no longer the badge that it once was. And so, which of course made BBC Sherlock so difficult to write, you know, uh, Moffat and Gaeta said doing the deductions in a modern day is really hard because people don't have calluses on their fingers and they don't wear clothing that telegraphs who they are. So they had, had to, had to be very inventive for, BBC Sherlock. And do you have to do research to try and figure out the deductions? Is there a lot of research into what, how Holmes might have thought and then how you work your way back? Well, I usually know when a deduction has to happen. Like, okay, he comes here and he figures out this. And then I like, then I can work backwards, which is of course what anybody does writing these deductions to work backwards. And so, so one of my favorite ones, for example, is one I did do research on I wanted Holmes, in, this is in the first book, uh, Art of the Blood, I wanted Holmes to notice that a woman was pregnant before her husband noticed, and he's a doctor. So how would he do that? <laughs> her husband, who's a doctor, how would Holmes know and not him? So I researched what were the wi- old wives' tales uh, remedies for morning sickness at the time. One of them was oranges. So it was dead of winter and in the north of England, and there's a row of oranges on her windowsill. And they would not normally be there because they're very expensive and very out of season. So, And he notices that and he notices that she's a little bit worried about her husband going off. And she's a very stalwart woman and he just sees the worry. And then he sees the oranges and he's like, you're pregnant. He knows it. I mean, he doesn't say those words because they didn't speak like that then, but he it's a it's a plot point. And I did that by researching of what, so I looked for that. Another time was I had to find a really creative way to kill an opera singer that wasn't easily, you know, it wasn't obvious that he dies of asphyxiation, but how, why? And um, I went to the Welcome Library, which is one of my favorites, the medical library. And I looked, for, I just, I don't know what I was looking, I was just looking for anything. And when I, I knew, I knew it when I found it. So I found a thing called an ammonia phone, which is a, a thing that they, you, they would, um, it's a, a breathing tube and singers would use it and they would inhale the chemicals in this. The chemicals were uh, chosen to emulate the air of, of uh, Italy because all the great singers came from Italy, so that must be the air. So, so they, they reproduced the chemicals in the air and they would suck on this stuff. So anyway, they used the pneumonia phone to, um, to poison this man. So, so, so that's how the research folds in. It's a lot of fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. So much fun. So cool. We often talk about our mountaintop here, the things or thing that we're aiming for in the, the short or long-term distance. What's that for you? What do you see next for you? You do have, a, I think, a sixth book with Sherlock Holmes, but what's your ambition for the future and your writing? I have three or three or four, actually. And I love to write theater, so I probably want to do some more theater. I may want to adapt my books for theater. I also think they would make a perfect uh, limited series. So I would love to, I may just spec write a script 
from one or more of them. I also, I have a spinoff series of women who live actually in this flat, right around the corner from where they live, <laughs> three women. Uh, and uh, so, and I, I have, I've pitched that actually my publisher. I have the first 30 pages to that book. And I also have a children's illustrated book and I love to write song lyrics. So <laughs> I can, I can be pulled into theater pretty easily. After our own heart. So many things you're interested in. I'm, I'm curious, many of us, maybe final, final, final question. Um, so many of us have so many things we're interested in. Focus. How do you focus? How do you say not now for these certain projects and now for this? How do you weigh that up logistically and mentally? Well, once I made my deal with HarperCollins uh, and then they wanted another one. So that just became front and center. And they wanted another one. So that as long as they want them, that's going to be my front and center task because I still, I'm not tired of them. I love doing them. Um, and I think at other times I would have enough energy to be doing a second project. I haven't recently because my husband's been ill and it's been locked down. So my life is not quite as fancy free as it has been in, at some periods of my life. Um, so I'm just really have time to do the one thing right now. But normally I'm a pretty high energy person and I normally could do two things, but uh, that may that may return. <laughs> if it does, we'll see. But um, they are interested in the three women thing. So um, at some point that may take precedence. I'm not sure yet. Well, keep us posted. Sounds exciting. We'd love to have you back for another time. Thank you. Such a pleasure to hear. I see a lot of nice uh, comments. Yeah. All right. Bonnie, thank you so much for your time. Lots of love. Best of luck. We'll be rooting for you and reading. And maybe let's do this again. But otherwise, we'll see you in Writer's Hour. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.